At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Violation of the Georgia RICO Act. Solicitation of violation of oath by public officer. Three counts. Conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer. Conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree, two counts. Conspiracy to commit false statements and writings, two counts. Conspiracy to commit filing false documents, filing false documents, false statements and writings, two counts. Thirteen counts in total. The former president of the United States is indicted in Georgia, accused of, in essence, leading a criminal gang, which committed 161 separate illegal acts or components. 161. From the fake elector scheme, through the breaching of the voting machines of Coffee County, Georgia, to the phone call to Brad Raffensperger to find the 11,780 votes, to the abuse of the state poll workers in Georgia, to lying to the Georgia State Senate, to trying to bring the vice president in on the conspiracy, to trying to bring the Department of Justice in on the conspiracy, to a specific charge that Trump directed his aide, Johnny McEntee, to develop a specific plan to prevent the electoral vote count and the certification from being completed on January 6th. Under a state racketeering act, the RICO Act, in which a guilty verdict carries a mandatory minimum sentence of five years and a maximum of 20, with many of the people who acted corruptly with him, acted corruptly at his insistence, indicted with him. 18 of them, Trump and 18 co-defendants. Rudy Giuliani, the Trump attorney John Eastman, the would-be attorney general Jeffrey Clark, the Trump attorney Kenneth Cheesebro, the Trump attorney Sidney Powell, the Trump attorney Jenna Ellis, 
the former chair of the Coffee County Republican Party, Kathy Latham, an operative in the voting machine breach there, a fake elector herself, the hat trick of crime. And surprisingly, political operative Mike Roman and Trump's last chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Roman and Meadows may have been cooperating in the Jack Smith federal version of this case, or they may not have been, but they clearly were not cooperating with Fonnie Willis. Others of those indicted included more of the fake electors. 19 defendants. 19 defendants who have until a week from Friday to turn themselves in, in Georgia. There are arrest warrants ready for each of them. There is an arrest warrant ready for Donald Trump. There is a mugshot camera ready for Donald Trump. Oh, and there are 30 unindicted co-conspirators. There is an unindicted co-conspirator number 30. It is breathtaking. It is sprawling. It is 98 pages long. It is national. Prosecutors say the criminal enterprise operated obviously in the state of Georgia, but also in the District of Columbia, in Arizona, in Michigan, in Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. It makes Jack Smith look like he's throwing six darts, while Fonnie Willis has brought a six-foot-tall pile of arrows with her. The trials could go on for years, like Wyatt Earp chasing down the Clanton gang went on for years. Hell, analyzing this indictment could go on for years. No wonder this became the first ever primetime edition of the Donald Trump Gets Indicted Again show. This is the war and peace of American political criminology. And that may be the point, ultimately. In our worst nightmares, on the morning of January 20th, 2025, Trump, whether indicted or convicted or still on trial or still on trial in multiple states or any other Republican, is sworn in as president of the United States and tries to pardon himself or can cause his new attorney general to drop every single charge already brought by Jack Smith or pardon every conviction ever achieved before a jury, and he gets away with it. He does not get away with it in Georgia. For once, the tyranny of time and the law's delay is working on our side. There are ways for Trump to wriggle out of this in Georgia as he has wriggled out of everything else so far. But he has no magic wand in Georgia to make this go away and cannot achieve one simply by being elected president. It would involve a convoluted fight against every facet, every one of these 161 criminal acts, every one of these 18 co-defendants, every one of these 30 unindicted co-conspirators, and every piece of evidence they have, and one at a time. And at her news conference just before midnight last night, Fonnie Willis said she hopes to begin trial within six months. And if she manages that, she gets an Olympic gold medal and she breaks the world record for the mile several times. This trial, these trials, this extraordinary event will not begin this year nor early next. 
and we only have an infinite amount of time here on a podcast, so I will not try to drill down on the charges yet, with one exception, from a cursory skim of this book-length indictment. I would direct you to page 24 and Predicate Act number 19, which I think distills in a way we have not seen before anywhere, the entirety of the Trump coup plot into one heinous thread. I quote from the indictment, on or between the first day of December 2020 and the 31st day of December 2020, Donald John Trump and Mark Randall Meadows met with John McEntee and requested that McEntee prepared a memorandum outlining a strategy for disrupting and delaying the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. The strategy included having Vice President Pence count only half of the electoral votes from certain states and return the remaining electoral votes to state legislatures. The request was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, unquote. That is, in effect, the origin point, the center spot in this web The moment at which, in the timeline of this infamy, that any doubt was erased, that any thought that this attempt to steal the election was somehow ad hoc or somehow an accidental outgrowth from a sincere belief that there had been fraud or deceit, that is the moment, page 24, predicate act number 19, where such an assumption vanishes. That is the point at which this becomes the Donald Trump plot to overturn the election. Fonnie Willis is charging Trump and Meadows not just with firing the smoking gun, but with holding the meeting at which the smoking gun was loaded. Incredibly, it is still very possible that ultimately the Atlanta indictments on charges pertaining to the attempt to steal a presidential election and end American democracy, they might not actually be the real lead story anyway, because there is the rather startling prospect on the side, but glowing in the dark, that Donald Trump in Georgia might not be granted bail. The Georgia statutes are pretty cut and dried here. Quote, a court shall be authorized to release a person on bail if the court finds that the person A, poses no significant risk of fleeing from the jurisdiction of the court or failing to appear in court when required, B, poses no significant threat or danger to any person, to the community, or to any property in the community, C, poses no significant risk of committing any felony pending trial, and, and this is the big one, D, poses no significant risk of intimidating witnesses or otherwise obstructing the administration of justice, unquote. All right. Uh, Define significant. At 8.58 Eastern Monday morning, Trump posted, quote, I am reading reports that failed Lieutenant Governor of Georgia Jeff Duncan will be testifying before the Fulton County Grand Jury. He shouldn't, unquote. Does publicly telling a former lieutenant governor that he shouldn't testify without a reason, without an adjective, without an explicit threat, does that indicate that Trump poses no significant risk of intimidating witnesses or that he poses some significant risk of intimidating witnesses. 
How about assessing that in the context of the fact that in the preceding eight and a half hours, Trump had used that same platform to attack and threaten the prosecutor in the three federal cases pending against him, and then to attack and threaten the judge in one of the federal cases pending against him, and then attack and threaten the Department of Justice, which is prosecuting him in all of the federal cases pending against him. If anybody anywhere who is not unconscious is not already seeing a pattern here. Trump took the interval between the handing up of the Atlanta indictments and their public release last night to symbolically stand up on a chair and scream, I'm still here and I'm still intimidating witnesses or otherwise obstructing the administration of justice. His campaign, his cult, released at 10.04 Eastern, a seven-paragraph statement in which he smears D.A. Fonnie Willis as, quote, corrupt and, quote, biased and insists the grand jury produced, quote, fabricated accusations and reminded the Georgia penal system that Trump, quote, will never give up and will never stop fighting. A, won't flee or fail to appear in court. While I could see him refuse to show up, especially if the trial is going badly or the verdict is due or worse yet, the sentencing. But he has not missed a court date yet anywhere else. And God knows there have been enough of them already. He's already had as many in-person court appearances this year as wives. So he's probably clear on A. B, no threat or danger in the community. Probably not. Not in Atlanta anyway. C, Committing any felony pending trial. Well, are we counting intimidating witnesses or the prosecutors or the judges in other cases? Or is that just D? It would take the guts of a cat burglar for a county superior judge anywhere in this country to rule that a former president of the United States, even this amoral schmuck, is not eligible for bail because of his repeated threats towards figures in this case and others. But that, supposedly, is why some people are judges. I mean, they can't all be members of the Federalist Society. And so far, in his months on the periphery of this case, Judge Robert McBurney of Georgia has shown the guts of a cat burglar indeed. But we don't even know that McBurney will get this case. The simplest measure of what McBurney, or whichever judge does draw the assignment, should do, is the swap-out rule. It's not the state of Georgia versus Donald Trump. It's the state of Georgia versus you or me or any of Trump's co-defendants listed alphabetically or by age or height. You know, the 18 people it takes five minutes to just read the list aloud of. Any of us, we would not be granted bail or we might be granted it under only the most stringent of conditions, probably confined to the state of Georgia in the interim, or maybe to house arrest wearing an ankle monitor. And you and I do not own our own social media websites, nor lead our own cults, nor talk to their members in the language of terrorism by remote control, nor do it so efficiently that just last week one of the cultists openly threatened to assassinate the President of the United States and dared the FBI to do anything about it, and when they did, he actually thought he could shoot it out with the FBI, and now he's dead. I am not expecting them to refuse Trump bail because, frankly, the prosecutor and the judge who do that would be well aware that the threat of political violence works. And they would have something on their hands, the likes of which we have not seen before in this country, something that the world would compare to Lula in Brazil 
or maybe what's happening in Niger or Myanmar, or hell, maybe the world would compare it to Napoleon. But the judge could easily begin with sterner restrictions on what Trump can say and cannot say and what happens to him if he says it than did Judge Chutkin in Washington. And they should, because sooner rather than later, the American justice system is, as I said yesterday, going to have to break Donald Trump or Donald Trump will break the justice system. And so far, there is no indication that Judge Chutkin or Jack Smith has even begun the process of caging Trump's willingness to ignore the laws of this nation and spit at those who defend those laws. Smith pushed back yesterday against Trump, but against his demand for a special skiff, a secure facility for reading the classified documents in the Florida case, the one he wants at his home. Jack Smith was quiet about the Washington indictments and the Trump threats on Sunday night and Monday morning. However, quote, while on release, if you commit a federal felony offense, the punishment is an additional prison term of not more than 10 years. It is a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine or both to obstruct a criminal investigation, tamper with a witness, victim or informant retaliate or attempt to retaliate against a witness, victim, or informant, or intimidate or attempt to intimidate a witness, victim, juror, informant, or officer of the court. I have quoted there from the instructions that Judge Chutkin gave Trump and his attorneys last week. Last week. Trump attempted to intimidate two officers of the court hearing this case and a witness in another case in a span of eight and a half hours on Sunday night and Monday morning. A judge in Fulton County, Georgia, may not have the heft to decide to take what remains of our supposedly peaceful political system, the part Trump has not yet destroyed, and balance it atop the Washington Monument and hope it does not fall off. The idea that the judge will preside over a trial that could convict Donald Trump of something he could not pardon or overturn or have overturned on his behalf may be burden enough for the judge in Fulton County, whoever he or she turns out to be. But a federal judge hearing a case in which the defendant attempted to overthrow democracy, steal an election, cause harm or death to congressmen, senators, the vice president and peace officers, and according to the Atlanta indictment, planned it out at a meeting with Mark Meadows and Johnny McEntee, a federal judge has that heft. And she damn well better use it. Because the forces arrayed against democracy now, against the future of representative government of any kind in this country, against violence as our primary means of political communication, they are not backing down. Lindsey Graham, desperate, skulking, venomous, treasonous, despicable, decayed, putrid. Lindsey Graham spoke for all of the fiends last night. This should be decided at the ballot box, he had the nerve to say on Fox, and not in a bunch of liberal jurisdictions trying to put the man in jail. We did decide it at the ballot box, and then Trump decided to betray this nation 
and try to overturn that election. And you, Lindsey Graham, you helped him, you little shit. Two other notes. You may have heard this story. Joe Biden on vacation on a beach in Delaware and a question shouted at him asking if he had any comment on the rising death toll in Maui. And he answered no comment. Completely fabricated. Completely. This was the work of the White House press pool reporter. They're chosen randomly. This one is as random as it gets. His name is Rob Crilly. He is from the British publication The Daily Mail. It is not a newspaper per se, and Crilly is nowhere close to being a journalist. His most recent work has been stories quoting sources insisting America was flooded with terrorists after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and other stories about how popular Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is and how the Trump indictments mean America is reminiscent of Nazi Germany. What he's doing as the White House pool reporter is anybody's guess. What he's doing accredited by the White House Correspondents Association is just more evidence of that organization's long-time slovenliness. But here's the kicker. The truth could survive all that Rob Crilly is and isn't and all that the Correspondents Association is and isn't, but what it can't survive is Rob Crilly making up what he thinks Joe Biden said when he was asked for comment about Hawaii. Crilly's official pool report from the beach I'm quoting it in its entirety. POTUS stopped when he heard a question asking any comment on the rising death toll in Maui. He appeared to say no, no comment, according to lip readers in the pool, but could not be heard. He climbed into the SUV, which then left in the motorcade for the short journey up his street and lid at 1905, thanks to all co-poolers for lip reading. Unquote. So Biden's supposedly callous response to the worsening reality of Hawaii was not heard by the pool reporter, by any reporter, by anybody near the reporters, but lip readers think they know what he said and were willing to put quotation marks around it. I don't know how many White House reporters I've met over the last quarter century, but a clear majority of them cannot understand things that are clearly explained to them aloud. And half of those who can cannot understand the meaning of those things. But now we're putting words in the mouth of the president of the United States about a disaster with deaths in triple digits because all of a sudden they are all qualified lip readers. The White House should have come out punching the moment the story broke yesterday afternoon. It should have gotten the Correspondents Association to get Crilly to retract or at least confirm he heard no such thing and is guessing, or it should have reclaimed its sole right to control who does and does not get to cover the president and get into the White House. Instead, it issued a statement saying President Biden was praying for the people of Hawaii. A lot of the people in the White House are not qualified to play the game at this level. Amateur lip readers operating from 30 or more feet away think the president may have said no comment becomes simply an unqualified quotation of Joe Biden for all time. Rob Crilly. Which segues into today's comic relief. Talk about actually hearing what somebody said rather than just guesses about what they said. The Ronnie Jackson body cam video is out. Well, 
it's the police body cam video. And, well, it's only 29 seconds of it, possibly because it was the cleanest 29 seconds they had. In the 29 seconds, Jackson emits only two F-bombs. The congressman insisted immediately after this happened he was not drunk and that he was respectful as police told him to back away from a girl who was having a seizure at the Amarillo Rodeo. Yeah, not so much. No, you did not. You came in, you flew in, and you were a full-on dick. I did ask you to get back. I can read his lips and he is not praying. Also of interest, funniest doggone thing, the political website Roll Call has gone through the list of Joe Manchin's latest donors. And like a dozen of them, all work for the same television network. You want to guess which television network? No, not that one. Mm-mm, not that one either. <laughs> yeah, that one. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline campaign finance reform city, Arizona, which is a place that does not exist and never will. The website Roll Call reporting that just under $2,300,000 in campaign contributions to 16 House and Senate members in this cycle alone has gone to repaying loans to their campaigns made by themselves. Mehmet Oz took back a million two from contributions. Ron Johnson, 400000 and some of his self-loans were from his campaign in 2010. J.D. Vance... 
480,000. That's out of a million one raised. George Santos has raised 209 grand since his election. A lot of people want to underwrite a con man, and he has given 85,000 of that to himself. Or two, perhaps. Katara Ravache. Thank you, Nancy Faust. S-A-N-T-O-S. Santos makes the very best con Dateline, Charleston, West Virginia. Hello. Speaking of contributions, an interesting list of donors to Senator Joe Manchin, revealed by the website The Intercept, $3,300 from Jack Abernathy, $6,600 from Adrian Farley, another $6,600 from Jamie Gillespie, $1,500 from Mike Mulvihill, $1,000 from Fernando Zhu. Viet Din and four of his friends donated a total of 11350 Who are these people? Why, they are all executives and lawyers for Fox. Jack Abernathy is CEO of Fox TV stations. Mulvihill is the ratings expert in sports. And Din was the lawyer who thought they could beat Dominion in court. And they all love Joe Manchin. And Dateline Hudson Yards, New York. CNN has retooled its entire anchor lineup. Or has it? A lot of stories about this yesterday. I mean a lot. The most publicity CNN has gotten since the last time Chris Licht let himself on fire. And I think every one of these stories missed the point. And ultimately, that is the point. Phil Mattingly is the new morning co-anchor, except he has been filling in as morning co-anchor since spring. Abby Phillip will anchor at 10 p.m., Laura Coates at 11. But Abby Phillip and Laura Coates had been doing that off and on for a year. In short, CNN just announced a bunch of new anchors of key shows who were already anchoring those shows, and nobody, not even the few people who still have jobs covering television, noticed that the new hires were already in the jobs. This is ominous. It is one thing if the viewers aren't watching. It's another if the TV critics and TV writers aren't, and they're not even bothering to Google. And by the way, no change at CNN at 8 p.m., where the Anderson Cooper Career Memorial Silo Hour will continue as originally scheduled. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, it was the feel-good story of 15 years ago. Adopted out of terrible poverty by a rich white family, and his surrogate mother fought to get him seen by college and pro scouts, and he grew up to be Michael Orr, star tackle at Mississippi and for the Baltimore Ravens. And their story was made into a box office smash film, and it got Sandra Bullock an Academy Award. And yesterday, Michael Orr said it was all a fraud, and he is suing his adoptive family 
In fact, he says Leanne and Sean Tui did not adopt him. They had him sign a conservatorship agreement instead, which is still in effect, even though he's 37 years old now, and through which they got to control all the money from the movie, and he got bupkis. And in the suit, Orr says the Tui's got two and a half percent of the film's defined net proceeds, and it grossed $300 million at the box office and tens of millions more in home video sales, and he got nothing. He says he only found out about this this year. The Tui's say none of this is true, and they are shocked the name of the movie was, prophetically as it turns out, The Blind Side. I used to take a lot of heat inside ESPN and outside of ESPN for regularly asserting that Derek Jeter was not one of the top 100 players in baseball history and not one of the top five players in New York Yankees history, and that if you were going to call him a leader because he was team captain, you were going to have to note that the Yankees won four World Series with him in the seven seasons he was not team captain, but only won one World Series in the 12 seasons he was team captain. I also pointed out that when he was CEO and part owner of the Miami Marlins, he didn't really seem to understand how the sports business worked. One of his earliest observations was that while he would be trading away his higher-priced, better players to cut salary and expenses, he expected more fans to spend more money buying more Marlins tickets. He never explained how that was supposed to happen. Derek Jeter was eased out of the Miami Marlins operation more than a year ago. Now, one of the people his group bought that team from has attacked Jeter, Jeffrey Loria, who had lots of flaws himself, but did manage to con South Florida into giving him a free ballpark for a city that has never and will never actually support Major League Baseball. Jeffrey Loria, art dealer, told the Miami Herald that Jeter, quote, destroyed the ballpark by getting rid of all the colorful decor and the on-field aquariums and especially the bizarre Some people loved it. Seven-story tall Marlin statue that looked like an erector set toy gone crazy and was painted every pastel color known to man. Destroying public art was a horrible thing to do, Loria says, pointing at Jeter. To me, it reflected the culture of Miami. Now, it's all blue. It's ridiculous. Still, things are better at the moment in Miami than with Florida's other big league team. The Tampa Bay Rays say all-star infielder Wander Franco has been placed on the restricted list. He doesn't play. He doesn't have to get paid, though the Rays say they are paying Franco's salary. This while the league investigates a series of social media posts made during the Rays game Sunday alleging a relationship between Franco and an underage girl. With photographs... Baseball and its fans have a lot of problems, but the response to such accusations has always been appropriately harsh. First baseman Ed Boucher of the Philadelphia Phillies arrested for exposing himself to several young girls. Boucher was suspended, institutionalized for half a season. Pete Rose, in the midst of the rehabilitation of his post-playing career, the star of Fox Baseball's pregame and postgame show, fired disappeared from the game when a relationship with an underage girl was revealed 40 years after it happened. Now, Franco on the restricted list and being savaged online by baseball fans with such observations as a tweet by an account called New York Jankies, quote, sorry about this, quote, quote, you can call Wander Franco up to the majors, 
but he will always be in the minors. Hey, don't blame me. I just I just read what the producer puts in front of me. Of course, I'm the producer. Still ahead on Countdown, if you're going to sue NBC to get out of having to cover the Monica Lewinsky story against your will, who do you want as your attorney? Well, Monica Lewinsky's attorney. Am I right? The 25th anniversary of that adventure ahead in Things I Promised Not to Tell. First time for the Daily Roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Bronze, Kellen Browning, a New York Times reporter who admits to covering the video game industry. I don't know if this explains what he's done, but something has to. On Friday, he tweeted from his coverage in Maui, quote, Alicia Stratton searched desperately through the wreckage of her Lahaina home for the Rolex watch her parents gave her when she graduated college. Suddenly, her fiancé pulled it from the ashes. You found it, she said, choking up. It was damaged, but still legible. Accompanying this were two photos, one showing Miss Stratton holding the charred watch, her hands and nails in surprisingly perfect condition, considering she'd just been doing this desperate search. Okay, that's Friday, and the full extent of the Hawaii disaster might not yet have been fully clear to Mr. Browning. Well, maybe not. An hour later, Browning reported on the Times Live blog about a woman named Sarah Salmonese and her, quote, unreal discovery of her diamond earrings among the twisted wreck of her Peloton bike. Pulitzer for sure. I guess we are fortunate Browning did not follow his updates on these miracles amid tragedy by writing, the Rolex and diamond earrings strewn rubble of Lahaina might be an unusual place to find Trump supporters, but in this Hawaiian diner, the runner-up Vivek Ramaswamy, who is still running for the GOP presidential nomination, though I am beginning to think this may actually just be a Fox reality TV show, to be called my not-so-big, not-so-fat, stupid, dark horse presidential campaign. Ramaswamy was on with another deep thinker, Hugh Hewitt, when Taiwan came up, and Ramaswamy basically said this country will defend Taiwan to the death. Well, not exactly the death, but until we stop needing what they're making, and then the Taiwanese can go F themselves. Quoting, quoting Ramaswamy, I'm being very clear. Xi Jinping should not mess with Taiwan until we have achieved semiconductor independence, until the end of my first term when I will lead us there. And after that, our commitments to Taiwan, our commitments to being willing to go to military conflict will change after that because that's rationally in our self-interest. So, defend them until we finish bleeding them of their semiconductors and then buy Felicia. Is that the deal, Vivek? Never occurred to Mr. Ramaswamy that if we actually said that, like he actually just said that, that the Taiwanese could then slow walk semiconductor production so we don't ever achieve semiconductor independence, couldn't they? I, I might mention this to my former Cornell classmate, now the president of Taiwan. It seems like Ramaswamy realized what he had done because he ended the interview 15 minutes before the Hewitt people say they anticipated. But our winner, and this pertains to that, Ramaswamy's communications director, Trisha McLaughlin, 
doing cleanup on his amazing faux pas? Uh, Not exactly. Her response to this? She complained to a reporter who wrote up the Taiwan disaster that, quote, your story and headline are inaccurate. It was a 20-minute schedule hit that went way over to 45 minutes. If you plan to write about Vivek or our interview schedule, please reach out to me to ensure accuracy. The guy just did an RFK Jr. to his own campaign, only it's about Taiwan, and she's focused on correcting how long the interview was scheduled for? Trisha McLaughlin, Vivek Ramaswamy's communications director. Idiocy game, recognize idiocy game. Today's worst person in the world! At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. One story on the countdown and back to my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. So 24 years ago this week, I nearly hired Monica Lewinsky's lawyer to sue NBC so I didn't have to cover the Monica Lewinsky story anymore for NBC. It started in like June of 1998, and I was at the lowest point of what would turn out to be a 10-month struggle to extricate myself from having to host at least one hour-long show every night covering the news of the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky investigations, whether or not there was any news, and whether or not there was any journalistic, ethical, or legal justification for doing it, because guess what? My employers had a hit on their hands, and they weren't going to let anything other than money factor into this equation. I had tried everything I could think of. On the air, I trashed how we covered it. The ratings went up. I trashed how we covered it in newspaper interviews. 
The ratings went up. I trashed how we covered it in a commencement speech I gave at Cornell University. The ratings went up. I threatened to quit publicly. The ratings went up. I trashed the prosecutor and said this was a political distraction from the threat of terrorism. The ratings went up. NBC tried to blackmail me into staying, and I hinted at that on the air, and the ratings went up. Finally, a friend inside the office of the head of NBC Sports, Dick Ebersol, revealed that Ebersol and company had been part of what she had called a little white lie about the contract I had signed a year earlier when I left ESPN Sports Center to go do MSNBC News with a little NBC Sports on the side. Turned out it wasn't a little NBC Sports on the side. NBC Sports was, in fact, paying the majority of my salary, even though everybody at NBC News insisted to me during and after the negotiations that it was like 90% news and only 10% sports. This detail was my first ray of hope. It was not much, and it might or might not mean the contract was invalid, but it was technically illegal to do what they had done. If you sign a contract with somebody who says he's paying you, and it turns out, no, you're secretly being paid by somebody else, and that isn't in the contract, you have been deceived into signing the contract. And if you have been deceived into signing the contract, well, that might be enough of a can opener to get me out of here. So I needed a lawyer. On June 2nd, 1998, William Ginsburg retired as Monica Lewinsky's lawyer, went back to Los Angeles. He was only there because he was a friend of her father's. He was a medical malpractice lawyer with a little experience in contract law. He was also really good on TV. And to this day, when the same person appears on all five of the Sunday talk shows on ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox and NBC, all in one morning, especially if they do it live in the studio, it's called the full Ginsburg because he did it first. Bill Ginsburg hated the story, understandably. I hated the story. I heard through colleagues that he respected the way I tried to cover it and not the way anybody else did, so I wrote him a letter. I suggested that while contract law might not be his specialty, pushing back against the public humiliation of Monica S. Lewinsky was his specialty, and he could help her and help me at the same time. And he wrote back that he liked the idea, he would research it, and we should have dinner the next time he was in New York or I was in L.A. That time came on August 20th, 1998. I was in L.A., staying in Santa Monica, and he said, perfect, let's go to the Jonathan Club. And it really was a terrific meal and conversation with one of his law colleagues joining us. Bill Ginsburg was gruff and funny and a big sports fan, and he had been involved in the legal action after the death of the college basketball star Hank Gathers. I was at Loyola Marymount University the night Hank Gathers died on the court. We had a lot to talk about. Bill was also a Dodgers fan, furious at the trade of Mike Piazza, and wanted to know the inside story, etc. And there were a few drinks. We went fully off the record, and after he said he would love to represent me if I sued NBC and thought I had quite a case, and thought if I just let it leak inside 30 Rock that I might hire a lawyer, particularly if I leaked that I might hire him to sue them over deceptive contract negotiations, NBC might give up quickly. Having resolved our business before the second drink arrived, we spent the next four hours telling each other all the horror stories of our respective roles in this, one of the dumbest, most self-debasing cluster frocks in the history of American politics and the history of American law and the history of American journalism. 
Obviously, Bill had a lot more horror stories to tell than I did. And after hearing dozens of them, I asked him to let me tell three of the stories someday on whatever terms he dictated. He laughed and he said, okay, 20 years from tonight or after I'm dead, whichever comes first. Sadly, Bill passed away in 2013. The first story was just TV gossip. Bill said that early on, right after the story broke in January 1998, when he was still living in a Washington hotel and trying to figure out what was what and who was who, he had been taken to dinner by Rita Cosby of Fox News. She later worked with me for a time at MSNBC. She had a voice like the Leo the Lion character from Looney Tunes. Hey, wait a minute. And she was approximately exactly as fetching. Somehow, he found himself at her apartment for a drink. She carried two whiskeys to the couch on which he sat and curled up next to him. Just let me leave, Bill quoted himself as saying, and I'll tell you anything you want to know. Before Bill Ginsburg told me this other story, he said he thought it explained the entire Clinton Lewinsky saga. The older I get, the more inclined I am to agree with him. He said that sometime in the late 70s, he was getting groceries at a huge supermarket in Beverly Hills, when to his shock, he saw his college classmate from Cal Berkeley, Bernie Lewinsky, pushing a shopping cart toward him. The two men had not seen each other since they graduated in 1964. They immediately swapped stories, they embraced, and Lewinsky casually mentioned where he and his family lived. I was doing pretty well in my practice, Bill told me. And Bernie and I were the same age, 35, 36, and I had a house in Beverly Hills that I paid $50,000 for, and I thought I was king of the world. And then Bernie told me his address in Beverly Hills, and I realized he must have paid $500,000 for his house. And I said, Bernie, I know you're a genius, but how could you possibly afford that place so soon? And he said he had this oncology practice, and they had just opened another office, and he was at one or the other of those offices like six days a week. And I said, great. And then he said, plus, five nights a week, I'm the overnight emergency oncology doctor at Cedar sinai Hospital. And I said, great. And then I realized what he had just told me. Bernie, I said, you work six days a week and five overnights a week. So you work 11 days a week? And he laughed and he said, it's easier than saying no to my wife. And that, Olbermann, explains everything you need to know about the Clinton Lewinsky story. Wow. As it turned out on the NBC contract stuff, Bill Kinsberg was prescient. I told one of the top NBC office gossips that I'd had dinner with Monica Lewinsky's former attorney, and we had sketched out plans to sue NBC because it had deliberately lied to me about whether I was being paid by NBC News or NBC Sports. And like four weeks later, out of the blue, NBC suddenly advised my agent that it was giving us 10 days to negotiate a deal to sell my contract to Fox Sports for a million dollars and the promise that I would not go back into TV news for two years. Coincidence? I think not. My Bill Ginsburg's. Oh, wait, I didn't tell you the third story he said I could tell 20 years later. If you know anything about the Clinton Lewinsky saga, you know about the dress, the stained blue dress. If you don't know, eh, look it up somewhere. I don't have the time or the patience to tell you it here.
But what Bill Ginsburg said that night 24 years ago cracks me up to this day. You know, he said, when Monica took that dress out of her closet to wear it at Thanksgiving and she realized it was stained, she wasn't certain. She thought the stain might be potato salad. Such a pain in the ass he is. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from our studios high atop the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, which was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Kenny Maine, and everything else was pretty much my fault. That's countdown for this, the 951st day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. Let's go on an odd even system. Arrest him on odd-numbered days. Don't arrest him on even-numbered days. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.